Well, good morning, RC. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Good? Ah, oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Hey, well, it is the time of month where we do some update stuff on the building. I was asked yesterday by somebody I deeply appreciate, hey, is there any updates? And I said, we have no updates. Now, the good news is I don't have down dates either. I have middle dates. How about that? So that's kind of the way we're looking at this. So what, what we're in that stage of life with on this whole project is lots of yellow light things right now. In fact, they're more like speed bumps and and more like the QFC speed bumps up on the ridge. You know, the big speed bumps that drive you crazy so you drove by McDonald's so you don't have to deal with the speed bumps. We're in those speed bumps right now in the project. And so we're waiting on the builder for some things. We're waiting on the city with some things. We're waiting with the banker on some things. So we're waiting, all right? So that's the middle ground we are in right now, kind of just waiting for things to come together. We put everything in the hub kind of in that space of ready to go whenever all the other pieces and players can come together and make some decisions. But I just want to solicit you to be praying during this time too, because that's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of people in play with this, making decisions and figuring out things. And it's not like everything is just easy peasy and just off into the green light zone. So things are going on right now for sure. Certainly solicit your prayers, waiting for decisions to get made as we go. But with that, I want to give you the financial update for the month as well. So this is for last month. Uh, These were some of our numbers. So you see the building fund, the general fund, the total giving for May was 69,000. Our total target every month is uh, we're shooting for 90,000. That's an important number, especially as the lenders continue to look at our monthly numbers. And so we just want to keep that before you. We want to make sure we're keeping you informed and aware of just kind of where things are trending right now. And so with that, hey, if you've never given before or maybe you've been thinking about giving more, whatever it is, uh, certainly this would be a decent season to do that with right now because, again, all the pieces are starting to come together. And uh, again, we just are excited for what God is doing and we are eager to get through these next stages. So anyway, you are informed. That is a part of the business here today, but that's not why we're gathered today. We are gathered today because we are in this series, right? We've spent three years uh, investigating the life of Jesus, and the series has been called The Scandalous God because everything Jesus is doing as God is a scandal. He hangs out with scandalous people. He says scandalous things. He pushes scandalous agendas. And the very conclusion, these last few weeks that we are finally emerging into, are scandalous as well. And perhaps some of the deepest scandal— Because it's in this particular section of the story where we see the scandal in which humanity tarnishes God. Humanity trashes God. Humanity rejects God, abuses God, and ultimately humanity executes God. And God withstands it all in his grace. See, that's the scandal of the day and for the next several weeks. And so if you have our app, there are notes in the app that you can follow along with this morning, all the verses that are there. There's little sections you can uh, fill in the blanks on as well. But I want to go ahead and get our hearts ready for today because, again, today begins this section that's brutal in the story. And uh, I, I think in that, too, there's lessons to be learned even in the midst of the brutality. And there's appreciation to be given to Jesus for the fact that he was willing to be brutalized and in that to show tremendous grace as he faced those things. And so right now I want to just give us a moment to pray quietly to ourselves and then I'll pray and we'll jump right into the section we are in the book of Luke, which is chapter 22 is where we're at today. So let's go ahead and take a moment here together.
Jesus, there are many things that are going on in our own personal lives. There's many things that are going on in the world. There are a thousand distractions or concerns or worries or frustrations or anticipations or expectations. All of that is in there. But I pray that right now you will isolate our hearts and our minds to this moment to focus on your great sacrifice for us. It's not simply that you die, but it's the way in which you die. It's not simply that you suffer, but it's the way in which you suffered, that you were patient, you were kind, you were not retaliatory. There was these things that model to us what it is you want us to do in your name because you did those things for us. And so I pray that we are attentive students, that we are your true followers who follow your example in what you've done for us. That it wouldn't just be a history lesson, but it would be a demonstration of how we should face everyday life as we are your ambassadors. So give us what we need, point out our weak spots, and just inspire us to a greatness that rests in your power and strength. And so Jesus, we look to you and we thank you, we praise you, and we love you this day in your good name. Amen. So Luke chapter 22, right? What we've seen up to this point is that Judas has betrayed. Jesus is arrested. The majority of the disciples have fled. And then last time when we were together, we see Peter. And he is denied, and he was denied. And then he is denied a third time that he has any connection to Jesus whatsoever. And in the midst of that third denial, as the words are escaping his mouth and into the dark, cool air, a rooster calls him out and says, no, 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 you're guilty. That's what he hears. And it's in that moment that he locks eyes with Jesus, who apparently is merely yards away. He sees Peter, hears Peter, looks to Peter, Peter looks to him. And Jesus gives him that gaze of grace. Like, I knew you would fail. I told you you'd fail. But I love you still, and I want you to return to me. That's the gaze of grace that Jesus gives to all of us. But in that moment, Peter doesn't feel a sense of grace. He feels that he is a disgrace. And so he follows suit with the others. It's the first thing in your notes. Jesus is abandoned by his friends. All the others fled, but Peter follows, and yet even Peter now has left the courtyard, and he's weeping bitterly. So the last of the allies that stuck around has now melted under the, the weight of accusation. Right? He finally realizes he's failed, he's ashamed, and he leaves. And so now what you have in the scene is it's Jesus isolated, Jesus alone, Jesus amidst nothing but enemies. No advocates, no allies, no friends, no loved ones. He is by himself with those who hate him. And these people who hate him are now unchallenged and they are unhinged. Which leads to the second thing in your notes. Jesus is abused by authorities. Now, something you have to understand about the Gospel of Luke, there's four accounts of this particular evening, right, where Jesus is bouncing from trial to trial and different persons. Uh, of the four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is the most brief. 
So when we go through this today, you're going to be waiting for different parts of the story. Like, well, what about with Pilate's wife and she has a dream? Why don't we see that? Or you're going to see some other thing about all the ways Jesus is accused of all of these kind of theological errors. And and you're not going to see any of that in Luke. Luke is not interested in any of those details. He's the most truncated on the events of that evening. And in this, he also goes kind of soft on the Roman part of this thing. I mean, Rome is implicated, Rome is to blame, but he kind of softens it. And I believe the reason for that is because this gospel that he writes is to a friend named Theophilus that we are pretty certain was a Roman official of some kind. Luke doesn't want to get in the weeds of pointing all the fingers and who's most to blame. The reality is everybody's to blame, but he kind of softens even that blow. So, so this is a very narrow vision of the night, but it's still tragic. And it's still clear that all the parties have rallied together to kill God. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're powerful or powerless, if you're a captain or a member of the crowd, if you're simply the steward of religion or you're the keeper of government, everybody is complicit in the events of this night that lead up to the next day in the crucifixion. Everybody's to blame, right? They all have stock in the execution of God in this world. And that's maybe Luke's chief idea. But things start to go really bad with the temple police. Verse 63. says, The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking him, and they were beating him. Then they blindfolded him, and they said, Prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And then they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. Now, at this point, Jesus has not been tried. He's not been found guilty. Right? So this is just police brutality, basically. So he's incarcerated, he's bound, he's subdued, and yet in that state, they decide in their own malice just to rough him up a bit, because why not? That sounds fun. And remember, these aren't just Roman police or whatever else. These are temple guards. These are police that are commissioned with believing the religious system of their, of their tribe, their people. These are Jewish cops beating up another Jewish guy for no good reason whatsoever, even though it runs completely counter to all the things they've learned in the Mosaic Law and what justice is all about. They don't care, right? They're just slapping them around. And Jesus is absorbing the brutality And I think it's interesting here that it says they blindfolded him. Because even though he's the one that is blindfolded, these are the guys that are actually blind on the scene. They think they see him clearly, but they see nothing. Jesus sees all, and they miss everything. In fact, even when it says they hurled insults at him. Remember we've learned that Luke writes in the Greek language? Well, this this phrase here is really captured in a single word in the original language, and it's the word blasphemed right so they're thinking that jesus is the blasphemer because in other gospel accounts we see that's what the religious leaders will accuse him of he blasphemes god he says he's god he says he's the son of god so they think he's the blasphemer but weirdly enough jesus is god he's not blaspheming god rather he's being blasphemed by these people and they don't even realize the sin that they're engaged in so he's not the blasphemer He's the blasphemed. But we continue to see throughout the story, he takes these abuses without a word. Without a word, without retaliation, without the sense of, oh, you just wait one day, 
Matter of fact, wait three days. Guess what happens then, bro, right? He, he doesn't do any of that. So he's setting an example for us. He's giving us a model of how maybe we should conduct life when life is aggressively against you. And so he's just absorbing the abuse. But now the abuse turns into being accused. Jesus is accused by religion. Verse 66. At daybreak, all of the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, and Jesus was led before the high council, right? So this is the Sanhedrin council. This is the most powerful, most potent group in all of the religious life of the people of Israel. And as Jesus comes before them, there is no silly notion of innocent until proven guilty, right? That is not registered in their mind. That is not a principle they operate off of in any stretch of the imagination, right? In fact, if anything, it's you're guilty. We just got to figure it out. We got to figure out how to burn you to the ground as soon as possible because they have an axe to grind, right? They have an agenda to keep. And, and what's super strange to me about this is, again, it's coming from religion. But this is one of the toxins sometimes in organized faith. One of the toxins is you think you're right, you think you have all truth, and because of that, you can justify really terrible actions in the name of defending God or your system, right? We've seen this even in recent years with different organizations that knew their leaders were doing bad things, right? Sexually inappropriate things, taking advantage of people, taking advantage of funds, whatever it was, and what did the organizations do? They covered it up. They paid people off. And they said, we have to do this for the greater good. We have to do this for the sake of the ministry. We have to do this for the sake of God's reputation. And so religion is sometimes way too quick to say, because our cause is so lofty, we can do some pretty sinister things behind the scenes and get away with it because, again, the end justifies the means. That's sort of what is happening on this particular morning. Religion says it doesn't matter if we have to lie, cheat, steal to burn Jesus down. Hey, it's for a greater cause. We're doing it to defend God. That's their mentality. And so they ask him, tell us, are you the Messiah? And that's a loaded phrase. Because what they're asking is, are you the Messiah by our definition? Are you the Messiah based on our expectations? Are you the Messiah who's going to fulfill our wants? Right? So that word doesn't just stand in isolation. No, everybody brings a defin different, different definition to the word Messiah. So they're thinking about one particular thing, and then they're looking at Jesus and saying, dude, you're obviously not that guy because you're not a fighter. You're a bit of a fraud. You're talking about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your enemy. That's not a Messiah. Messiah kicks butt, takes names, knows our enemy, and has their days numbered so they can flatten our enemies to the ground. They're not looking at Jesus as a legitimate Messiah, but they're asking the question. And there's a motive to the question. And Jesus knows there's a motive. And he knows it's not that they're interested in truth or in clarity, being informed. They're not looking at this particular first trial and saying, all right, we're just going to go where the facts take us. We just want a portrait of what is real. That, that's not the space that they are in. Thus Jesus responds, If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you're not going to answer it anyway. But, he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. 
And so Jesus knows that, again, words won't clarify and questions won't stimulate conversation, but he issues a statement nonetheless. And the statement is actually out of the Old Testament, that big fat part of our Bible at the beginning. And it's from one of the pieces of literature called Daniel. And it's in chapter 7. And there it's this promise that God's anointed one, his Messiah, his chosen one, this son of man figure, is one day going to sit on a throne next to God, which means God empowers him with all authority in heaven on earth to rule. And Jesus makes that quote, right? He says, here's what I can tell you for sure. That promise in Daniel is going to come to be. Now, it's going to come to be because we know the other part of the story. We know that through the cross and the resurrection and eventually his ascension before God and to the right hand of the Father, that's all going to come through the events of this weekend and the, the kind of the ensuing weeks after that. But, but when Jesus makes this statement and issues this quote, it triggers the leaders who are already super amped up, right? So are you? And he's like, I'm not going to answer that, but I'm going to tell you a Bible passage. And so he tells them the Bible passage, and then they all shouted, So are you now claiming to be the Son of God? Gotcha, Jesus. Like, this is their gotcha moment. Which is funny. I, I, I think it's crazy. Because he didn't actually say anything. He just made a statement. Right? He didn't say, All right, fellas, here's the deal. I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to ask questions. But I'm the Son of God. No, he just quotes a passage that's familiar. He doesn't claim that he is the fulfillment of the passage. Now, we're in on the story. We know he is. But in this moment, he doesn't confirm anything. He just simply says, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to tell. I'm just going to give you a promise that this is happening. Somehow it's happening. But they're so quick to want to condemn. They're like, oh, now you're making claims that you're God's son. I love what he says next. Well, you say that I am which is kind of weird, right? But, but the tone of it is he's saying, I'm not saying it. You said it. That's all I'm saying. You said it. I didn't say it. I said something. You said that. You connected dots. I didn't connect the dots. That's on you, you know? And it's really funny because I'm like, man, Jesus is sly, man. I dig the way he does that. So there's a little bit of this, I see your game. I see what's going on. I see what you're up to. And here's the irony of the game, all right? Um, they're talking out of both sides of their face, right? Because in one sense, they're looking at Jesus and saying, you're not the guy. You're not the Messiah. We clearly have decided you can't be what we've been looking for, right? So they're in that camp. But then equally and almost opposite, what they desperately need is for Jesus to say he's the Messiah, they need him to claim a thing that they're denying. And here's why. Uh, the Roman authorities, right, when Jesus eventually goes to Pilate and things like that, they don't give a rip about the little doctrinal dispute between Jesus and religious leaders. They don't care if he's blasphemed God. They don't care if he's violated the Sabbath. They don't care if he's touched lepers and he wasn't supposed to or eats wrong food or hangs out with wrong people. Like, Rome will not care about that. But what Rome will care about is anybody that claims to be a political figure called to overthrow Rome, a Messiah. If Jesus claims to be a Messiah, he is challenging the throne of Rome. If Jesus claims to be a Messiah, the Romans will hear that and say, oh, well, then he's a terrorist. He's an insurrectionist. He's a threat. And so the religious leaders have all of the reasons that they hate Jesus, but they're all doctrinal but they need Jesus to be a political threat so Rome will deal with him, 
right? They don't really have the power to stone him under the way things were working under Rome. So they need Rome to crucify him, and therefore they need to pin this idea of he's a political threat onto the story. So they're pushing for this Messiah narrative while at the same time denying Jesus is the Messiah. And while Jesus doesn't outright own this idea, he says, hey, you guys said it, I didn't say it, you said it. It's enough for them to run with. And so in verse 71, they say, why do we need other witnesses? We ourselves have heard him say it. No, you did it. You've heard you say it. He just kind of lets it slide, neither affirming or denying. But with that, there's a jurisdiction change. And Jesus moves from the sin of the sacred to the cynicism of the secular. That is when Jesus is analyzed by governors. Verse 1, chapter 23, Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. Listen to the case. This is so good, man. This man has been leading people astray by telling them not to pay taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he is a Messiah, a king. Here's what's dumb about this, all right? These guys don't dig Rome. They can't stand their occupation. They are not patriots. Not of Rome. But now they're walking in like, oh, we love Rome. Can you believe what this dude's doing? He's telling people to blow off taxes. He's telling people to follow him so he can overthrow you. He claims to be a king. Watch out. So they're just making stuff up now, right? Because when you read the story all the way through Luke, Jesus has done the opposite. When they said, hey, what should we do about taxes? He's like, pay them. Pay your taxes to Caesar. And that got booze from the crowd. They didn't want to pay taxes to the Roman government. And when it comes to claiming to be a king, he's never claimed to be a king. You know what Jesus continues to claim? I'm here to be the servant of all. I'm here to give myself away. I'm, I'm here to be a slave to the least of these Right? So the crowds called him a king riding into town at the beginning of the week, but Jesus doesn't con- consider himself in that sense the king that they're all anticipating. Right? Because he's a very different kind of king that's doing things in a very different kind of way. And so these leaders, as they're telling Pilate this story, somebody should douse them with water because liar, liar, their pants are on fire. Right? totally on fire. They are lying all the way through this whole thing. But this isn't Pilate's first rodeo, right? He's a shrewd guy. He's a politician. He knows how the game is played. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And his question is, are you a threat? Are you a revolutionary? Should I number you with the rebels? Because remember, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. It's time for me to go so I could be numbered with the rebels. I can be numbered as a, as a terrorist, as an insurrectionist, as a rebel who wants to overthrow Rome. And so that's all Pilate wants to know. Are you a danger to us? And Jesus replied, you've said it. There's this thing again, right? It's neither a complete denial or acceptance. It's like he, he kind of gives that nod of, what do you think? What's your take on this, Pilate? That's kind of his response. And what's fascinating is that when statements are made like this, um, it's like different people hear it in different ways. It it reminds me of an audible Rorschach test, you know? The inkblot test. It's just 
verbal. Like, some people are going to hear Jesus say one thing in that statement, and others are going to hear another. So the religious leaders, when Jesus says, well, you have said it, they're probably thinking, oh, this is awesome. The dude is tying his own noose. High fives, fellows. High fives. He actually admitted he's a king that wants to overthrow Rome. But Pilate's listening to that exact same statement, and he's like, that's weird. That doesn't sound like a revolutionary. It doesn't sound like a guy that hates me and wants to see me dead and take my throne as a governor or take Herod's throne up north in Galilee. This doesn't sound like a revolutionary that wants to burn everything to the ground. This is, this is a weird response, right? Now, here's what's fascinating. If we fast-forward the story a little bit, um, technically, Jesus will conquer Rome. He will. But he won't conquer it in the way that Pilate's concerned about. Pilate's concerned about violence. The way Jesus is going to conquer Rome is he's going to rise again, empower his people. His people will go out with the gospel and with grace. They will willingly suffer for this. They will not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. They'll undo evil with good. And with 300 years Uh, of hardship and suffering and persecution, this weird thing will happen and Christianity will be decriminalized and about another 50 years later, it will become the the religion of the empire. Right? Jesus is like, I'm not the king that you're looking for. I'm not the kind of king that will threaten you. I'm actually the kind of king you would want and I can enrich you. But, But Pilate wouldn't understand that. But what Pilate will understand is if you're not a threat, I'm good. And Jesus isn't a threat in this way. Because of this, Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd, and he said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Which I'm sure they're like, what? He just said he's a king. He's like, nah, I see nothing, bro. I see nothing. Right? I, I, I think this is so fascinating because really it's a legal thing here. So they've brought charges. Pilate, as the judge, has heard the charges and dismisses the case. There's nothing here to work with. This guy isn't causing trouble. Now, this is where panic sets in for the religious leaders because they're thinking, this is going great, and suddenly this is going awful, right? So then in verse 5, they became insistent, but he's causing riots. This is great. He's causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea and from Galilee, all the way to Jerusalem. He's causing trouble, man. He's got this riot roadshow going on. He runs Antifa. He rolls with George Soros. You know, like all that is in there, right? He drinks the blood of puppies. Hates fossil fuels. They're just calling everything out, right? But Pilate, um, he goes, the only thing I heard in everything you said is, he's not from here. He's not from my jurisdiction. He's from Galilee? Sweet. I can punt. Verse 6. Oh, he's a Galilean. Well, they said he is. It's true. So Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Classic politician, right? Right? Brilliant. Now what's interesting is that Jesus and Herod, they have orbited each other's life from the birth of Jesus, really. So Herod Antipas, his father was Herod the Great. Herod the Great heard about this king that was to be born in Bethlehem and from that sought to kill all the children in the region. Right? So now we're seeing the relationship. So from Jesus' birth, this family of Herod has been against him. Well, eventually, Herod the Great dies. Herod Antipas takes over, among some other brothers as well. And Herod Antipas then connects with Jesus again in a tangential way by arresting his cousin John the Baptist, 
by executing his cousin John the Baptist and by hearing all these stories about Jesus, so much so that in chapter 9, he's like, I want to meet Jesus. Then by chapter 13 of Luke, he's like, I want to kill Jesus, which means Herod is not a stable guy, all right? But now, finally, they are physically intersecting for the first time. They're going to have a face-to-face. Verse 8. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. So, Jesus has been on trial with the Jews. Jesus has been on trial now with Pilate. He's supposed to be on trial with Herod, and instead Herod's like, we're going to have a headliner. Woohoo! In other words, he doesn't care about entertaining whether Jesus is an insurrectionist. He's more like, is Jesus an entertaining guy? Can he do some party tricks? Can he juggle like six balls, ride a unicycle, and heal a leper all at the same time? Like, that's what he wants to know and see, right? So, he's not really interested in the real facts of the case. He just starts asking questions, right? But as he asks question after question, Jesus refused to answer. So, his curiosity doesn't align with Jesus' mission. Like, Jesus is really clear. He seeks Seekers, If you have a question where you're really curious about something that's of true eternal importance, Jesus is going to answer that. But, but Herod is not a seeker. He's just a looky-loo, right? He's just like, I just want to see some cool stuff, do some cool stuff, answer some interesting questions, right? And so he's asking these questions. And meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations. So I'm like, what bedlam is going on here? You know, it's like, Herod's like, all right, Jesus, I gotta know. Why is abbreviation such a long word, you know? Why do they call them apartments if they're so close? Why do you park in a driveway and drive in a parkway? How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? So he's asking all these useless questions. And meanwhile, the religious leaders are in the background shouting, he evades taxes. He wants to overthrow your throne. He cuts the mattresses, tags off of mattresses, and they say not to, like, whatever they're accusing him. But they're just trying to get Herod off track of useless stuff and onto the track of condemn him. That's their focus, right? Now, we don't know what they were fully accusing of, and we don't know fully all the details of all the events that were unfolding, but Jesus is clearly silent, and from all of that mix, the tone changes. It says, Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking And ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a robe on him and they sent him back to Pilate. And then Luke throws in this little anecdotal thing. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. It's like Jesus brings people together, even even on a night and day like this. And so Jesus won't entertain Herod's curiosity. So Herod will just become entertained through his twisted brutality. And so they bully Jesus, belittle him, and berate him. They acknowledge his true status in a mocking way. So they create a mock kingship, and they mock this king Jesus as the court jester. So they dress him like a king, say, ha, 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 how cute, how adorable, you're a king, and they punt him back to Pilate. So now it's Pilate's political problem again. So Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders among with the people, or along with the people, and he announced his verdict. Right? So there's been a trial, another trial, third trial, and with that, Pilate's like, okay, let's just get this cut to the chase. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. 
I examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I found him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. So it's this weird split the difference. Like, it's, it's not real, real justice here. Like, real justice would be, I found no guilt, the doors are open, Jesus, you're free to leave. But Pilate's a politician. He's like, okay, the masses are mad, and Jesus is innocent, and I don't know what to do. I'll split the difference. I'll beat him and let him go, and then maybe if I beat him, they'll pity him, even though I'm giving a pardon for him, and that will be good enough, right? That's perhaps the mindset that he has. But see, religion isn't saying, hey, would you just rough him up for us? No, religion's saying, hey, would you wipe him out for us? Would you grind him into dust for us? And so as the day has been going on, you get the sense that the political leaders and the religious leaders are drifting from being on the same page. And the religious leaders can sense that. And, and, and so with that, they're like, man, I don't think Rome's going to follow through on what we need them to do. We need to apply pressure to Rome. We need to actually poison the well of the population. We need to use a newfangled democracy to try to get the, the mob mentality fired up to apply pressure then to Pilate to change his mind. And so last week we talked about cancel culture. It was alive and well in the first century will use the masses to drive Pilate to a decision he doesn't want to make. And that becomes their attitude. They go out into the crowd somehow, begin stirring everybody up. And with that, we see the final point in your notes. Jesus is abhorred by the crowds. It says in verse 18, Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice, with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Now real quick, there seems to be a custom that Pilate had that on this particular festival, he would release one inmate. He would pardon an inmate. And so it seems to be between Barabbas and Jesus, and the crowd wants Barabbas. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. So it's interesting to me how crowds can get fired up. Like the individuals of a crowd wouldn't do it, but you put a crowd together and they just take on a different mindset. Right? We saw it in the summer of 2020. We saw it in January 2021 where, again, crowds just take on this whole new morphing mentality and they will become bloodthirsty in their aggression. And that seems to be the crowd here. And it is the same crowd that just a few days earlier, when Jesus rode into town, they were like, blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're screaming, curse him and let him die. He's a fraud and we're done with him. We don't want Jesus the pansy. We want Barabbas the patriot. We want the guy that will take a sword, kick some butt, deal with our enemies. We don't want Jesus. We thought he was the guy, but by the end of the week, we realize he's not doing that. He's not what we want. He's not what we desire. Now, what's interesting is the name Barabbas. Barabbas. The first part of that, Bar, is uh, you're familiar with it actually, bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandments. Bar is son. And that last part, Abbas, Abba, it's the word father. So they're calling out for the son of the father. We don't want the son of the father. We want Barabbas, the son of the father. We don't want Jesus, the true son of the father. 
right? So, so they want their Messiah their way for their goals. A violent and treasonous son of the Father, not a gracious and selfless son of the Father. Verse 20, Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate is a man of power, but on this particular day, the crowd is out shouting his authority. It's drifting quickly. He's losing control of the situation. So for the third time, he demanded, why? Why do you want this guy dead so badly? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. Did you notice the patterns? Three denials, three trials, three appeals, all pointing toward the next three days. God loves to work in threes. And so Pilate is sought to lead, but it's the mob who is ruling. So the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Right? Sometimes democracy can get twisted, and that's what it is here. It's a forced democracy to overthrow a sense of tyranny. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they had demanded. And as they requested, they rele- he released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. And so in this scene, what you have is that God is, 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 is handed over to humanity so humanity can do whatever they want to God. Right? Part of what we have to understand about what this whole scene is about, what the cross is about, is God saying, I love you so much, I'll put myself in your hands. And humanity saying, we don't want you on your terms so much, we'll kill you for doing it. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus, who is God, still saying, and I'm going to love you on the other end. I'm going to rescue you through this. I'm going to take your hate and your aggression and your rejection, and I'm going to turn it into redemption and grace and forgiveness. It is radical and scandalous what is underway in this scene. Because every step of the way, he's exercising patience, long-suffering, grace, tenderness, love. Because at any moment, he could lash out, right? Say, enough's enough, right? Just break his bonds, be done, wipe out everybody, but, but he holds back. He could speak out. He could cut down. But instead, he just moves forward, right? In, in silence so often. It's because he's going to the cross of grace to forgive our sins of hate. He sees our sickness, and he's the cure In fact, when we unpack the whole scene, you see all the problems that humanity faces, right? You see the disloyalty of Peter, the bullying of the soldiers, the hypocrisy of the religious, the injustice of the government, and the blind rage of the crowd. Like, all of those are things that we humans are so good at manufacturing in our hearts. But then Jesus just takes the road to the cross in love, in grace for us. See, humanity, it's lost its way. It's spat in God's face. It decided it wanted to rid his presence in the world. And yet he took it willingly in love to rescue his enemies. One of the best passages that I can, I can think of to capture why this particular evening and into morning and all of these trials is important to us is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. It was our call to worship this morning. But I want to read it at the end 
because maybe we'll hear it differently. And I can't think about, or can't help but think about when Peter was writing this particular little letter. He sits down, he sees all of his Christian friends are suffering all over the place, and so he starts penning this letter. And he's like, man, what do I say to people that are just getting their butt kicked repeatedly? What, what example can I point them to on how we can suffer well in the world? And, and he says this. He says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Right? Notice that. Suffer doing it patiently, not begrudgingly, not frustrated, not making a lot of statements about how unfair it is, but enduring it patiently. He says, that's where God is pleased. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So Peter, again, is reflecting on the night in which he said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. He left, he was crying, and now he's reflecting on what Jesus endured the rest of the time. He says, Jesus never sinned, and he never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered, right? He could have done that with the temple guards. He could have done that with Herod and his fellas. He could have done that with Pilate. He could have done it with the religious leaders, but he doesn't do that. If they're insulting him, they're lying about him, they're doing all these things, he's just chill. Why is he chill? Because he left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He says, all right, God, I'm gonna let you handle this. I'm just gonna be an example on how to do this right and to do it well. It says he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. The way we live for what is right is we do the very things that was just said. We sometimes think living for what is right is merely just being a moral and good person. It's actually embodying and incarnating the example of Jesus and what we see in this series of trials and the way he responded. He did this for us so that we can go and do the same thing for him so that others can see him in us and hopefully from that come to follow him too. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for challenge. I thank you that you push us outside of comfort zones. I thank you that you model something that, frankly, we don't have much interest in doing. I, I don't. I read this and I go, I, I don't want to be that guy. I'd rather retaliate. I'd rather, you know, fight. I'd rather call my enemies names than pray for them and want to do good to them. I'd rather be retaliatory. But then I see what you call us to, to model grace in a world that is hurting, that is sick and needs healing, and only you can do that through your cross, through your resurrection, through your grace, through the example of your people being like you, that's how you will heal the world. And I pray that we are faithful emissaries of that message and we will embody it with our actions and reactions so that we can make much of you so that others can come to see you as well. We thank you, Jesus, for your love and your grace in your name. Amen.